You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And I'm here today with Gerd Gigerenzer, who is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, which is in Berlin, and is the author of many books, most of which I've read, including this one. This is the most recent book, Risk Savvy, How to Make Good Decisions, which covers a lot of territory that you discuss in more detail in some of your other books, like gut feeling, calculated risk, reckoning with risk, bounded rationality, adaptive toolbox, and simple heuristics that make us smart. I think that was the first one that I read probably 20 years ago or so when it first came out. Welcome, Gerd. Oh, welcome, Greg. I think that the, the thing that you're probably most famous for is what others perceive as a conflict between you and the JDM folks. The JDM folks, the behavioral economics folks, the behavioral finance folks who love to point out human shortcomings, love to make fun of people and call them stupid, and then set out to educate them about their stupidity. I think you take a very different perspective on human frailty. You're less about pointing out people's stupidity and really trying to highlight how we can improve decision-making by changing the way we communicate, changing the way we think. Is this contrast between you and these other folks in psychology, is this somewhat exaggerated? Is there really more in common than there is difference between you and the JDM folks? I think I'm part of the JDM folks. And I also think that my research helps to just make progress. It is true that psychology went into a phase of uh, blaming people, having cognitive illusions, being uh, irrational, whatever terms were used. And that was very different from psychology was before the 1970s where it was much more clearer what a marvel the human brain is. And we see this today. There's no artificial intelligence that comes even close. Hmm? Artificial intelligence can solve problems that are well-defined, chess, go, but it has its struggles with uncertainty. And the human mind evolved to deal with a world of uncertainty where logic is just one of many tools. And that part of behavioral economics and also psychology that likes to point out how dumb everyone else is, uses logic and probability theory as the standard of all good thinking. That it is a good standard in a world of risk, of calculable risk, in a world where everything is stable, but it's not a sufficient standard in the most of the real world we are living. So I think in machine learning, we talk about optimal complexity of the, the models we're using. And, and models that are too complex tend to overfit, do a poor job of predicting. Models that are underfit do a very good job predicting either. And figuring out what the optimal level of complexity is in, in a machine learning model, one of the most important things you can do. Presumably the same applies to human judgment, right? We have a choice as to whether you use more complex or, or simpler models. And I think you've come out as saying that we tend to emphasize the benefits of the more complex models, and we, we fail to appreciate that sometimes models can be too complex. Is that a fair characterization of of your, your perspective? Part of my research group has been always people from machine learning. And you might think about my research as a combination between psychology and machine learning. So we are testing simple heuristics against the most complex machine learning tools, such as random forest. And the general idea is something that Einstein once expressed, yeah? try to make your model simple, but not too simple. You have to scale down. There's usually an inversely shaped 
U function between so the over the complexity and if you make it too simple or too complex you will lose that only holds in a world of uncertainty so if you build your own system and know it exactly then try to be as complex as possible but again the distinction between risk and uncertainty is one of the most fundamental one in my own work risk means as frank knight pointed out long time ago that you know all the future states of the world, the consequences and probabilities for certain. That is the case if you play roulette and you can, in principle, make a similar statement for chess, although here you cannot compute the optimal uh, situation, but it's a stable world. In this world, then logic, probability theory, expected utility maximization and optimization in general is possible. Not in chess, but in the world of risk. But elsewhere, optimization is by definition not possible because you don't know the entire state, uh, speed first. You can maximize if you don't know that. And here we need a different a kind of strategies to cope with uncertainty. And one of those are heuristics. That also implies that heuristics are not second best, as it's often said, to optimization. No, in an uncertain world, there is no optimization. And heuristics are often the only thing we can do. The question is then, which ones are better than other ones? Or complex methods, like in machine learning, which don't optimize, but just try to find a, a good solution. Is here complexity better than very simple methods? And that's the question of ecological rationality, because you need to decide this by looking and studying your problem that you have and the match between mind and environment that's herbert simon's idea is the study of ecological rationality but this is a very different point though than the herb simon point that sometimes you just lack the computational resources or the cost of the, the speed that you need to process the information is not adequate and so you fall back on a heuristic. This is a very different argument that you're making. Because in that case, then presumably that when the cost of processing the data and, and the data set gets bigger, and then you would just increase the complexity and fall back on something that's that's less heuristic. You're making a very different point. Yes. Let's be fair to Herbert Simon. Sometimes he emphasized the match between mind and environment. He had this uh, analogy between a pair of scissors. Hmm? One blade is cognition. There's one is the environment. And if you just look at one plate of a scissor, you will not understand how it can ever cut so well. You need to look at both of the match. But it's also correct what he said that sometimes Simon forgot about that. Particular, he was addressing two different groups of people, economists and psychologists, and he was emphasizing different things. And moreover, his notion of bounded rationality is not a good term because it suggests that the problem is in the mind. And the heuristics and biases program has worked just on that side, just trying to point out what's going wrong with our minds. But there is a reason why evolution has given us simple heuristics. And you can study them in animals, in humans. And it is because in a world of uncertainty, a mind that would analyze every detail would not only never make a decision, but also overfit, because it would just think that the future is exactly like the past. And 
Uh, heuristics are more robust, more flexible, and I find it fascinating to study how humans deal, and also animals, deal with uncertainty. And also, in many cases, immensely simple heuristics like recency or recognition, where you look just at one variable, can outperform the most celebrated big data machine learning models. So here's an example. Remember, Google flu trend it was in 2008. It was hailed as the big success of big data. And its task was to predict flu-related doctor visits in certain regions, and faster than the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, can do. It takes like two weeks or so. And the intuition was also very clear. Namely, you could measure the spread of the flu by analyzing the search terms people put into Google search machine. You just need the right algorithm. And so they came up after analyzing some 50 million search terms and testing even more algorithms with a secret formula that worked with 45 or so variables and then predicted the spread of the flu in the regions. Now, the interesting thing is that in the following year, 2009, something unexpected happened. The swine flu came and it came out of the season. The algorithm had learned for many years of big data that the flu is high in the winter and low in the summer. The swine flu came in the summer. So it underestimated the flu and the engineers couldn't really get it there. So they revised the entire algorithm. Now there are two ways to go. One is you have a complex problem and a complex algorithm and it fails. What do you do now? You make it more complex. That's what the Google engineers did. Now, our research suggests something different. It's not about complexity, it's about uncertainty. And here we have a highly uncertain environment. Viruses change, new viruses enter. People enter search terms for all kinds of reasons. For instance, because they're curious, not sick. And in this world, if a complex algorithm does work, make it simple. So we have tested a very simple heuristic called the recency heuristic. So this is now a program of what I call psychological AI. So you start with what experts or people do, take that seriously and model this and program this into software and then make your predictions. So we know from since the 19th century from psychological research, starting with the law of recency that people in a volatile, uncertain world, they don't take the, all the data they have, but only the most recent piece. And the recency heuristic we designed takes only the most recent one. So in this case, the last report about the last number of flu-related doctor visits in a region. And the heuristic is that that's next week, it's the same as last week. It's very simple. We test that over the entire eight years that Google flu trends existed. And the recency heuristic halves the error of big data algorithm that uses in its updated version 160. So the simple heuristic with just one data point, you can predict better than with big data. So this is just an example that illustrates that simple heuristics are not used because people have cognitive limitations. They're used because in a highly uncertain world, you need to make it simple. And often to find the right heuristic is you study how the human brain acts in such a situation. 
So here is something that the Chris Anderson, when he talked about the great success of Google Flu trends, making generalizations that science is over, correlation is everything, causation, we don't need the end of theory. And he suggested that this is what a science can learn from Google. So I put it the other way around. What can Google engineers learn from science? In this case, in such a situation, don't make it more complex, make it simpler. So how do we know ahead of time uh, the type of model we ought to be using? Don't we need to kind of cast a very wide net to figure it out? The recency heuristic is one in, in your book, you talk about how market forecasters, they seem to use the recency heuristic. And of course, they get it wrong you know, all the time. So you need to know ahead of time when it's appropriate and, and when it's not appropriate. Or can you just try out a bunch of different decision rules and then figure out which one works best? I use, so in my research group, I've always had people from about 10 different disciplines at one point of time. And that's very important to learn about heuristics. So people in machine learning have different ideas from evolutionary biologists who study animal decision-making. And there are examples where heuristics that are used by animals are the same we use. So humans mainly use different heuristics. In They use more social heuristics than most animals. That's our big difference. So we imitate the successful or we imitate our peers, a very simple heuristic. And without it, human culture would not exist. And as Mike Tomasello has shown, the children imitate much more generally, much more precisely than any kind of apes ever do. And we need to take these assets that we have seriously. They also have, of course, their limits. You can imitate the wrong person. But to understand how human mind functions, it is important to cast your net widely and try to find out how the mind works and what tools it uses. Right. So figure out when there's a mismatch between the animal decision-making and the environment, because the human environment today is very different from the human environment that we evolved in for many hundreds of thousands of years, right? Yeah. And that's very clear. And that's exactly the topic of ecological rationality, the study in what environments some of the heuristics work and, and the not work. Recognition, name recognition is often a very good indicator for quality and many other variables. But at the same time, there's advertising, and there are advertising companies who just focus on one thing, namely increase name recognition in as many people as possible. That's a kind of arms race going on between these things. And that's very interesting to see how this works. You mentioned that the experts are sometimes the, the problem. Maybe we can talk about the turkey illusion, which you've been alluding to, which is the mistaking of risk for uncertainty for risk, and, and particularly in, in financial markets. I teach a lot of courses on finance and financial engineering, and, and certainly in finance, the desire is to incorporate everything into quantitative modeling. So could you talk a little bit about how the experts might potentially be to blame when it comes to the popular misunderstanding of uncertainty versus risk? So the, the illusion is the following. So imagine you are a turkey. It is the first day of your life. A man comes and you fear he will kill me, but he feeds you. Second day of your life, the man comes again. You fear he might kill me, but he feeds you. Third day, same thing. According to standard models, such as Bayesian probability updating, the probability that he will feed you and not kill you goes up every day a little bit. On day 100, it is as high as ever before. 
but it's the day before Thanksgiving and you're dead meat. So the turkey was not in a world of risk where it knew all the possible states of the world. There were surprises. Uh, the turkey illusion has been around in, uh, in the, with chickens and other animals in philosophy before, and Nassim talked about it. And it's probably humans who commit the turkey illusion, not turkeys. And the financial crisis is a good example for that. If you look back before 2008 at the volatility indexes, all measures of trust in the market, they were going up the measures of trust, volatility as they were going down until shortly before the crisis. And in essence, the same type of mathematical models have been used, which basically calibrate on the past, it's usually a short time of past, and predict the future will be as past. But that doesn't work very well. And I'm working with the Bank of England, with Andy Haldane, who is the chief economist and analysis, to design tools that are simple enough in order to capture uncertainty and here to make the financial world a little bit more safer. So the tools that we have developed are fast and fruit trees, that's our incomplete decision trees that just ask maybe three questions in order to predict bank volatility. And one immediately reacts, oh, but there are so many other factors. But exactly that's the problem, getting all these factors in, estimating their parameters in an overfitting game. Also, one needs heuristics that are sufficiently flexible like the recency heuristic in the Google example I gave before, they can follow changes and not predict more of the same. In general, you're right. Financial theory, so Markowitz Merton type of theory, is made for a world of risk and it will not work well in the real world of uncertainty. Or in other words, it will work well as long as nothing happens, but not then. The alternative would be to teach those investment heuristics that work, to teach heuristics for everyday people, how to invest. And also going back to Harry Markowitz, who got his uh, Nobel Memorial Prize for the mean variance model that's still taught everywhere, including many modern versions of that, Bayesian and otherwise. So when Harry Markowitz made his own investment in the time of his retirement, he used his Nobel Prize winning optimization method. So we might think he did not. He used a very simple heuristic, one of the most elementary ones. It's called 1 over n. n is the number of assets or alternatives you want to invest in, and it just means divide equally. So if you have two options, then you do 50-50. There are a number of studies that have shown that in many situations, 1 over n makes more money as measured by Sharpe ratio and other standard indicators than mean variance, and also can hardly be beaten by more sophisticated models. But the real question is not whether 1 over n is better than mean variance or the other way around. The real question is that of ecological rationality. Can we identify the conditions under which a simple heuristic likely will outperform these type of complex optimization models and when it will not happen? And for instance, one candidate for such a decision, for these conditions, is the size of the number n. So 1 over n has no free parameters. It doesn't have to estimate anything. It ignores all data. It's the opposite of big data. And while the complex techniques like Markowitz 
they have to estimate parameters, and the number of parameters they have to estimate increases exponentially with n. So the more parameters, the more overfitting. So this is the kind of thinking. And we do not know. We have no complete answer to the question when 1 over n will outperform Markowitz and vice versa. But that's the kind of thing what I would wish that financial theorists go after. But of course, to do something like 1 over n, you have to figure out what the categories are, right? And you can structure those categories in any way you want. You could have one group be stocks that begin with vowels and, and others that begin with consonants, right? You could have fixed income versus equity. You could have international versus domestic, right? There's it's almost an infinite w- number of ways you could slice those assets uh, into different buckets. So the, the presumably the, just the hard work is in deciding what how to categorize those buckets. And then the easy thing to do is to apply the 1 over n rule. But that is part of the ecological rationality question. Does it matter whether it's small size, big things? But I've seen too many talks and I've participated where someone praised a very sophisticated financial model without ever testing it against something simple. So for instance, when I gave a a talk to a large financial conference on the value of simplicity, one of the people in the audience was the financial person of a large insurer society. He came up to me and said, okay, I will check that with my own data. And two weeks later, he came with his helper who had done the calculations that we have reanalyzed our entire investments since 1969. We have worked with a number of recalibration methods. So 1 over n is no longer 1 over n after a year. So we have to read this. And whatever method we used, it was would have been a better investment than what we have done. So I asked him, are you going to do a fund? And actually, by the way, there are a number of 1 over n type funds. Meanwhile, he said, yes, but I need first to clarify something else with my colleagues. The customers might say, I can do that. So I was trying to calm him down and said, look, there's the entire question of ecological rationality, which we need to clarify. A simple heuristic is not simple. We need to find out in which environment that works. So what is the N? What is the type of ends? And so on. So there would have been lots to do. Well, I think the, the maybe the reluctance to adopt such a rule or publicize that they're adopting such a rule says something about culture. And I think you've mentioned that cultures that have a positive approach to error are ones that are ultimately going to evolve into better cultures with better decision-making than those that have sort of a negative view of culture. This is a negative view of failure. This is something which here in Silicon Valley, we talk about fail fast, fail often, and so forth. And I think the the examples you use is airlines versus hospitals. And I think you quote someone from the airline industry saying that if they had the error culture of a hospital, there'd be plane crashes every day. Can you talk a bit about what does it mean to have a positive error culture? Yeah, positive error culture assumes that errors can happen. If an error happens, it is taken as a piece of information in order to find out what's going wrong. A negative error culture assumes that errors must never happen. If an error happens, the idea is to cover it up, or if that doesn't work, to blame someone, to find who is guilty. And an example for positive error culture are the international aviation industry. So I've worked with Lufthansa, and the example that you just gave is from a conversation in a cafe in Munich I had with a doctoral student of mine who happens to be a captain in Lufthansa, and she and an official of Lufthansa plus the head of a hospital were 
This was the four of us. And the remark that you cited came from the head of Lufthansa, of these, uh, the security part, addressing his good friend, the head of the hospital, and saying, look, if we had the aeroculture you have, we would throw down every day a plane or more. And hospitals are examples for negative aerocultures. Not every hospital, but too many. And where, if errors happen, there is no such uh, critical incidents reporting as in airlines. And there are also the tools like checklists are sometimes in place, but not always. In the two pilots, they go through endless long checklists. And I know they have to do this. And loud, and the other one has to repeat in order to reduce errors. In many hospitals, it's still not the case. Although there are studies by Peter Pronovost and many others who show that very simple checklists that have just five or six items, all about hygiene, could save so many lives if it would be followed. And the items are very simple. So before you put some kind of cover, put some kind of other things on, it depends on what the surgery is. But we still have not managed that every hospital would do that, but every plane, every cockpit crew does it. Aeroculture is very important. And that's my take on that many of the uh, things that are going bad are not to some misconception in some person's mind, but it's the culture in which people act and also fear in many groups. You better not admit an error because you've been punished. It's a negative error culture. It's kind of like five whys, Toyota five whys. Why was there a flaw in, in the vehicle? It was because the screw was inserted incorrectly. Why was it inserted incorrectly? Because the line was moving too fast. Why was it moving too fast? Because they had to meet this deadline. Well, you basically, instead of demonizing or pointing a finger at somebody, you, you figure out what's the problem with the process and then modify the process. So the, I think the heart of this book is, is, is really all about kind of understanding risk and uh, uncertainty, but particularly about risk, because there's another flaw that you talk about, which is this, I guess it's the, the illusion of certainty. That's another illusion, but also just a failure to have the ability to think in these abstract probabilistic terms that probably theorists and statisticians like to use. So even highly educated people like doctors and financial economists, their grasp of probability is somewhat tenuous. Could you talk about how did you become interested in this and why did you become so attracted to doing research into subjective risk perception? Oh. Yeah, it's basically my own life. I had to make decisions in my life. And for instance, when I was a graded student, I had to make a decision whether I want to stay on the stage as a musician and earn lots of money or to stay in academia and earn much less. These type of decisions, they have always interested me. And basically, I have been in a situation observing myself. Now, let's see how you make this decision. And a kind of curiosity that then helped me also to understand at least how I function and also then understand how much that is different from what you read, at least in standard judgment decision-making, where the assumption is that there's always a right answer. It's known by the experimenter, and if you deviate, the blame is on you, not on the theory. So that was a start. And I spent an entire year at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research into this very group on the probabilistic revolution. That was a formative year for me. I really learned from other disciplines. I also met my wife there. And I learned about probability and also about the limits of probability is a great tool, but it's not the only one. And then I got interested in how 
supposed to study what's beyond probabilities or heuristics, but also to help people to understand probability arguments better. And there are always two ways a probability argument can be made. One is transparent through. The other one is you think you are really a little bit stupid. You never get it. But it's about the representation. And so one of the first discoveries we made, which has made it now into schools, at least in Germany, and also into evidence-based medicine, was that Bayesian inference that is so difficult to understand for most people can be made easy to understand if you represent the numbers, not in probabilities, but in natural frequencies. Just to be clear, this is uh, Bayesian inference, meaning reversing conditional probabilities, understanding confusion matrices, false positives, false negatives. i give you a simple example. That's for everyone. So in a medical context, Bayesian inference, for instance, is relevant in cancer screening. So assume I've worked with, I've trained about a thousand doctors in continuing medical education in understanding numbers. And here is a case, I had about 160 gynecologists, and I started out the session, these are 90-minute sessions, and in very expensive hotels, everything paid for the doctors, but that's a different story. I started out giving a standard example. So assume you conduct mammography screening, and you know that in this region where you do it, the base rate of breast cancer is 1%. The probability that a woman tests positive if she has breast cancer is 90%. And the probability that she tests positive if she doesn't have cancer is 9%. So you have a prevalence of 1%, a hit rate of 90%, and a false positive rate of 9%. Now, there's a woman who just tested positive in this group. Nothing about her. It's just screening. She wants to know from you. Doctor, tell me. Huh? Do I have now breast cancer or how likely is it? 99%, 90%, 50%, please let me know. So what do you say? tell her? Now, the, here are 160 gynecologists, you know, typically in their 40s, in their 50s. It is a standard problem. They should know the answer. And if they don't know, I gave them the information in probabilities, conditional probabilities. What ha happened, most of them were looking down. I told them, don't look down. Look left and right. And you will see the others are also looking down. And it's not your problem. The problem is in the representation. And here is a different representation, which we call natural frequencies, which will help you immediately to see through. You just need to translate the numbers into natural frequencies. Here is how it goes. So think about a hundred women to make it simple. You always start with a class, not with a single one. Hundred women. Now translate. We expected one of them has cancer, and she likely tests positive. And from the 99 who do not have cancer, another nine will likely test positive. So you have 10 who test positive. How many of those have actually cancer? One out of 10. It's easy to see. And with a few examples, the doctors understood suddenly how they can use this tool and how they can understand the situation better. So that's an example. In the 1970s and 80s, base rate neglect was a huge one of the most prominent types of fallacies. And it is true, if the information is in conditional probabilities, most people can do it. But the problem is not in the human mind. It's between the mind and the environment. And there is another way to represent the information, and it's actually the one in which the human mind evolved. There were no 
conditional probabilities before the 17th century. And so counting is something the human mind can naturally do. And here is a tool that we can use to help people to boost their performance rather than to blame them for having something wrongly wired in their brains. So it's not just doctors. I mean, most people are pretty bad with probabilities, at least in the abstract. And I, th- I can imagine it's an immense educational effort to try and educate doctors in how to make these inferences. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense just to kind of spit out some kind of implications every time a test is run, right? When that test is run, have the, the results get spit out of the software saying, look, here's the deal, right? Why require doctors to to do the inference? Why don't we just make it really, really simple for them by giving them exactly the, the relevant information when the results are, are delivered? That's called technological solutionism. Yeah. It would work if doctors would understand the result. But the problem is, if you don't understand the number that spit out, you're lost. It's very similar with, we have now COVID-19. And then we learn that a certain vaccine has 90% efficacy. Another one has 70%. What does that mean? Nobody knows what that means. In my observation, most people misunderstand that. And it started, the misunderstanding started long time ago, last year. So this was before vaccines, when Dr. Fauci still hoped that it might be 50% efficient. And then there was an NPR program where someone explained what that means. And he said, it means that out of 100 people who get vaccinated, 50% won't get the disease. And by implication, the others will. That's exactly what it doesn't mean. It's a reduction of those who are not vaccinated and get the disease to those who are vaccinated and get the disease. So this is an example, but the general answer is it does not help to have a machine that spits out numbers. Then humans don't understand what the numbers mean. So it seems like there's two problems. One is the one of communication, where the experts are really doing a bad job of communicating. And then the other is that they themselves don't really understand, so that they can't communicate it because they don't understand it. So we're surrounded by numbers. During the COVID crisis, we're being bombarded with numbers every single day just to decide what to do in the morning and where to go and where to, you know, whether to wear a mask or whether to hose off your groceries. And people are relying on information that's being provided by the news media. Does the news media have an incentive? to provide useful information, even if it could provide useful information? Isn't there a a demand for fear and anxiety that trumps any demand for accurate information? Media have the primary goal to increase attention, which is the case for many. Then they will try to not only to provide bad news or good news, alarmists or less alarmists, but also use numbers that frighten people. One example is the use of relative risk increases as opposed to absolute risk increases. So I've done a TED-Ed program on relative risk versus absolute risk, which was just elected as the second best TED talk worldwide. And it's the only TED talk where I don't speak. (laughs) But it's interesting that it has so much attention. Good. The point is, So here's a very simple example. The media reported some years ago that shark attacks increased by 100%. So assume you are now on the beach. Would you let your children in the water or would you go surfing yourself? Now, 100%, that's lots. So what it meant is that in the previous year, there were worldwide six deadly shark attacks 
and it increased this year to 12. Six is the absolute risk increase, 100% is frightening. So you always can choose between numbers. If you would say the shark attacks increased from six to 12, worldwide, you wouldn't get in the headlines. And healthcare is one area where relative risk increases or also reductions are always used to impress people or frighten them. So one solution would be to tell editors and journalists, yeah, please report the absolute risks. Yeah? But that doesn't help because there is a different motive. If a journalist or editor has to get attention, that person cannot be blamed, has no chance. The solution is a different one. We need to make people risk savvy so that they immediately ask, yeah, what is the absolute risk? Yeah? Do you want to mislead me? So the moment we have smart people, then the problem is gone. I think one problem is that when you make people suspicious and you make people give people doubt in the authority of the experts, then you can go completely in the opposite direction, right? So if the experts lose their credibility, if it's been discovered that they have distorted or deluded people in some way, then you know everything they say going forward is discredited. How do we strike that balance where people are, they're thinking for themselves, but they're also not completely ignoring the expertise that, that the experts have to offer. Yeah, I think it's very important for experts to stay out of conflicts of interest. And it's also important for everyone who hears something to immediately look up who is paying the person. So if I would be paid by a pharmaceutical industry and not by Max Planck, that would be an information. But there's also a general problem. It's a problem of trust, because at the end, most of the things we believe we have never checked ourselves and we cannot check ourselves. So we have to rely on trust. And that's why institutions like science or a reliable media and also journals in general are so important. If we would lose trust in all of these institutions, including religious institutions, and only maybe trust within their own family, then we are going back into a society which we really don't want. And the technical misuses of social media is something that makes me very uneasy. And much of this allows to erode trust in the state, in the government, in politicians, and even erode trust at a level where nothing may remain. So we need to be more careful than ever before. I think in your book, you do a fairly comprehensive job of describing some of the issues with, for instance, excessive screening for cancer, mammograms, PSA tests, and so forth. And I think there's been some changes, some recent changes to try to reduce the amount of overscreening. But I think there's also quite a bit of suspicion. And a lot of people think that this is really just about healthcare providers trying to save money and so forth. And so, you know, when people have gotten so suspicious of doctors that no matter which way you go, there, there's going to be some suspicion, the healthcare that's being provided is not optimal for the patient. Yeah, being skeptical is a good idea. But in order to find out whether you can trust the source or not, some tools are needed. One is other conflicts of interest. And it's usually goes in the other way as some people think. They don't want to save money. They want to do too much because that brings money. And I also had a thought at the beginning, I'm now studying since more than 20 years, uh, doctors, and I've written books together with doctors about one entitled Better Doctors, Better Patients. We need both. 
made it patients who are critical, but evidence-based, and also doctors. It is very important to find out what sources are trustworthy and what are not. And in Risk Savvy, I give some of the links to societies which are the best evidence-based societies we have, such as Cochrane. And one can always find a trustworthy information. One can go a step deeper and find out what fight these groups of doctors still have to do. But on a surface, it's a difference. If you get information from a company that produces instruments or medication, and wants to make a business with you, and scientific sources. And that's one of the big things we all need to learn, to find out whom can I trust, and where, what are the cues for that. You can find out something if you look at the ending of the internet links, whether it's .com, commercial, or EDU, or other things. So this type of cues are all things we can learn. So I want to end with some questions about education. You've advocated some changes to education. I'm always amazed that statistics is something that's not taught in our high schools here in the United States. We teach trigonometry and things that are probably not terribly useful, but we we don't teach statistics. We don't teach decision-making. We don't teach personal finance. There's a lot of things that make it difficult for people to be risk savvy and to think for themselves. But even people who have a high degree of education, I recently in my class, I teach a class to financial engineers. These are people who, some of whom have PhDs in physics, some of them, they're programmers, they take classes in stochastic calculus. And I asked them to give me a a mortality rate for COVID for a particular demographic. And they were off by a factor of 950. After a year of consuming media, and basing their personal decisions on this information, they were just completely off the mark. How is that if people with PhDs in physics can't understand the probabilities based on the information that they're being exposed to, how is there hope for anybody? Uh, there's hope, but look, as long as we're not teaching everyone statistical thinking, when these people in school, when they're adults, they will not know it. It's much like teaching reading and writing. So 200 years ago, the argument was that some people are able to read and write, others the hoi polloi is not. There's no point. Now we have a school system where everyone learns to read and write, more or less, and that has been disproven. So people can do it. And we are now in a situation where the argument is, yeah, statistics is too difficult and people will not be able to do this. We need to nudge them into better behavior. And what needs to be done is to repeat what has been done at the beginning of the 20th century, namely teach statistical thinking. And it's important not to teach it as a mathematical discipline that will bore people to death. But statistics is that discipline within mathematics that really reaches out to the real world and teach these people into a playful way. For instance, teach them easy, simple things like what a 30% chance of rain tomorrow means. And they will find out that their parents probably don't know what the reference class is. Was it 30% of the time tomorrow or the region? Or maybe three meteorologists think it rains and seven not. So that's something where young people can get their own expertise and learn. They can do something better than maybe many adults. And the COVID-19 crisis should be the opportunity where you can capture the motivation. What makes us fear are numbers, not so much pictures this time. And that could be used in schools to teach what does 
are mean. Yeah? What do the incident rates measure? What do they not measure? And what uncertainty is behind all of these numbers? That would engage people. So we should use this chance and repeat what we have done before. Teach everyone statistical thinking. And if we can't at least teach people who are just the hoi polloi, as you say, at least teach journalists and doctors and professionals, because even academics who do research all the time often don't understand what a p-value is. So they're just not, they're not learning it in a way that really is intuitive for them. Yeah. I've just published a study about all studies of meta-analysis of all studies that have professors of psychology, what a p-value is. <laughs> and the far majority has delusions about what it is and cannot say correctly. Try your own professor. And it's no surprise, even those who teach statistics in psychology, which are mostly not statisticians, for instance, 20% of them believe that a p-value of 1% would mean that with 99% chance, the experiment can be replicated and it will come out in the same way. It's another delusion contributes to the replication fallacy. So there's a wide field. We could do so much and help people to get a little bit smarter and understand the world better. Well, thank you so much, Gerd. There's, there's, uh, I think there is some progress. I think that you're making an impact. I think that statistics and quantitative reasoning is being incorporated into the teaching of medicine and some other disciplines. And we're starting to see more transparent communication around false positives and around unnecessary treatments like mammograms. So definitely make an impact. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to remind everybody, this is a great introduction to GERD's work. Check it out, Risk Savvy. It's not just of academic interest, but it'll help you make better decisions, figure out how to get married, how to take a job, how to invest your portfolio, and all sorts of other things. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.